Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. It's Tuesday, May 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, it's Jason Moser, back in action. Thanks for being here. Switching the days up here a little bit, aren't we? You know what? Throw a little curveball every now and then. I mean, we don't want to let people just sort of rest on their laurels and just assume this is the way things are going to be. Exactly. Keep them interested. Uh, Well, that's (laughs) hopefully, (laughs) hopefully. Otherwise, they're like, I'm, I'm just going to go. What is Planet Money doing? I'm going to go over there. Um, It's May first, which means it's uh, it's time to sell all of the stocks you own. And then we just buy them back in the fall. That's that's what we do, right? Sell and say, sell in May and go away, right? Yeah, I was gonna say, just sell them and get out of here. Go do something else, right? Go play golf or mow the yard or, not really. Not really. No, nope. no. We got earnings, uh, and we're gonna get uh, to restaurants, and uh, we're gonna get to actually an experience you had over the weekend with. Uh, I th- I think it's fair to say it's one of your favorite public companies, but we'll yeah. we'll get to that. Let's start with Under Armour though. First quarter revenue came in higher than expected for Under Armour, I, but it's still the stock up pre market. And then I don't know, like, did they ha- did they already have the call? I haven't I haven't seen the call. I don't yeah. know what was said on the call that made the stock drop because it was up pre market, and the stock is down. I don't know four or five percent, something like that. It's nothing dramatic, right? But I this is this is what we've seen the last couple of quarters, isn't it? And by that I mean. International looking pretty good. Weakness in the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, this is what we see now. I think it's a little bit different, at least in that over over the last year, we've kind of been like every quarter they've been throwing a little bit more of a kitchen sink quarter at us, and I think we were really looking for the kitchen sink quarters to end. Now, with that said, no, I wouldn't chalk this up as a good quarter. But it was better than expected, and so that is to be noted. And it's also important to note that they didn't change their guidance; they didn't adjust upward or downward. So I think that is that's important to note. I think it's for a number of reasons. Is you know when when we think about Under Armour, investors are going to have to exercise patience if you if you're an investor in Under Armour. And you're buying into the fact that you think that Kevin Plank and his team can turn this thing around. It's going to take a little while, right? Because it's only really been a quarter since they finally got out in front of this, acknowledged problems, identified problems, and then sort of laid out a bit of a roadmap on how they're going to overcome these problems. And so this was really the first step in what is going to be a multi step process. And and I think the market's reaction, as tepid as it may be, is probably the right one because, like I said, it wasn't a good quarter, wasn't a bad quarter. I mean, it just it was basically what was expected from us. So I knew they were going to be reporting, and yesterday I was looking at my portfolio and I saw exactly how small a percentage of my <laughs> individual portfolio Under Armour represents. And that's why I'm. That's in part why I'm holding on to my shares because yeah. it is such a tiny fraction that I just sort of look at it and go, "All right, it, it's not really going to be meaningful if I sell this." And it's also not. And I've gotten a couple of questions recently since I've referenced uh, Chipotle, and it, it came up on Motley Fool Money last week that I sold my shares. I've gotten a couple of questions about sort of the decision that 
how I arrived at that decision, and it, it largely has to do with Stephen Ells. Yeah, and obviously this is before the leadership change, but when I look at Under Armour. Um, I don't have I don't have the same level of animosity towards the leadership that I had with Stephen Ells. I was just really it, it was actually affecting my sleep just a little bit with Kevin Plank and his team. I, I look at Under Armour and and look, I would have loved to have seen a, an even bigger surprise on the upside from Under Armour, an even bigger revenue beat. A beat on the bottom line, you know, all of that stuff. But that being said, there there was nothing, there was nothing that happened in this quarter that sort of compounded the negativity. No, I think the most glaring problem for Under Armour recently has been the North American story. The North American wholesale segment has been brutalized, and it it didn't really show any signs of of recovering in this reported quarter either. I mean, sales were essentially flat in North America. International has has done a little bit probably to make investors feel a bit better about the story. Uh, that growth is still there. Asia Pacific, for example, revenue is up thirty five percent. I think it was direct to consumer business is up seventeen percent. So there are good pieces to this release. And again, we go back to. The the keys that we identified on on our team as meaningful signs that progress is being made, and over the course of the coming year, we really wanted to see that they're able to stanch the bleeding in the North American sector, uh, that they are able to improve their balance sheet position because they really took that from a position of strength to a position of weakness with some honestly just some bad. Bad decision making, and and then also to make sure that the team that Kevin Plank has assembled here uh, is still on board a year from now, ideally five years from now. But in in COO Patrick Frisk, CFO David Bergman, uh, we're seeing them take uh, a bigger role on the calls in sort of dictating that strategy, communicating the strategy, and I, I think investors are, are uh, starting to feel a little bit better. That maybe Kevin Plank has realized he needs a little help here because I think if he lets this go, he could probably run into a situation where you get people looking at Under Armour and feeling sort of that same sense of angst and disdain that you were feeling with Chipotle because that really just downright was really frustrating, right? You yes. saw Steve Ells kind of take this business from from such heights to to just really wow, just just such doldrums in such a short period of time. And Kevin Plank has kind of done the same thing here, right? No, he absolutely has. And I think that you keyed in on something that I think is important, and that is the leadership team that he has around him and watching that they stick around. Because I would say more so than the average public company, this is this is a metric to watch. Look, it's always going to be Worth an investor's question when they see that part of the leadership team of a company that they own has left. You know, the CFO leaves, the chief operating officer, marketing, whatever. Um, it's always worth saying, okay, why did they leave? In some cases, it was uh, it was time to go. They just they're retiring. You know, there are perfectly valid and um, perfectly valid reasons for leadership to leave, 
that don't involve you as an investor changing your thesis. I think in the case of Plank, he needs to prove a bunch of things to investors, and one of the things he needs to prove is that he can keep a leadership team around him. So the fact that he is giving them a greater role on the conference call is a it is a small step, but it is a a step. Yeah, and I think really for him it's actually a big step, right? For us it's a small step. For him it's 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 a giant leap because this company is basically. Uh, been all about him up until this point, and that, that's fine. I mean, he founded it; he, he grew it to what it is. Um, it's interesting to hear the language on the call. He's sort of changed his tune a little bit here, and, and before it was all about supplanting Nike, becoming the biggest brand you know on the planet, growing that top line just to just to peak levels, and now he's talking about. Being a bit more methodical about about how he grows the business, we'd like to be one fifth as big as Nike. <laughs> exactly. I mean, let's just run a good business, and then maybe over time we overtake Nike, and that's the product of really running a kick-ass ship here, right? I, I think that that's easy. It's an easy trap to fall into, right? You kind of put the cart before the horse, and really, let's 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 remember that Nike has been around for a while. There's a reason why it's so big and so successful. It's been doing this for a long time, so I, I think. With Under Armour, I mean, there's a lot there to work with. I think the brand itself is probably worth more than the market capitalization of the company today. Uh, but I think investors are pretty sour right now on um, the state of affairs, and rightly so. I think there's a lot to prove, and I think we're going to assess here over the coming three quarters and on into 2019 how this leadership team is doing. If we happen to see one of these one of these uh, two executives step away, there better be a darn good reason why. Um, but other than that, I mean, I think we just we keep an eye on what they're doing. I think this was a good small first step in the right direction, but there is still plenty of work to do. Let's move on to Texas Roadhouse. First quarter results were pretty good. I'm curious what stood out to you because what stood out to me was the same store sales, uh, which was higher than expected. Um, Texas Roadhouse. Some of those locations are company-owned. Some of them are franchise. They break out the comps differently, and uh, maybe not surprisingly, company-owned same-store sales about a percentage point higher than franchise-owned. Yeah, and that disparity actually isn't so big. That's actually nice to see a pretty tight range there. If you see where franchise restaurants are underperforming by by a lot, then you have to wonder: Are you really franchising to to good uh, to good people? The thing that stands out to me really with Texas Texas Roadhouse is if you've been an investor in this business over the past one to five years, you've got to be feeling really good about life right now. I mean, oh, yeah. The stock has done very well, and I think for a lot of good reasons, right? The, the, the company has been performing very well. Um, I, I think the question for me is really just how far can they go, right? We, we see with restaurants all the time, it's a difficult business to, to really maintain that sustained level of performance. And, and for Texas Roadhouse, at a little bit more than 560 restaurants today, how far can they take it? I, I I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at it in context, I mean, there's 740 Outback Steakhouses at the end of 2017, so that gives you an idea of maybe how far Texas Roadhouse proper can go. But we also know they have the the Bubba's 33 concept. You know, I'm not I'm not terribly sold on on the competitive advantages there. I mean, burgers and beer, it's that's just a national identity, right? Here, I mean, it's. I think uh, that's maybe going to be tough to kind of build any kind of a real 
um, sustainable presence there. But I do appreciate the fact that it's another way for them to grow. And, and to your point about the comps, I think this was their 33rd consecutive quarter of same-store sales growth. So, obviously, they're doing something right. A lot of that was thanks to traffic being up 4%. That means people are coming in your doors, and that's the name of the game in the restaurant biz. No, it really is. And uh, we were talking the other day. Sort of, you look at the ways that you can drive uh, comp increase. You can drive it with more people through the door. You can drive it with higher ticket prices. I think the bub is thirty-three. I agree with you that there's. Nobody should be necessarily looking at the Bubba's 33, which is essentially a sports bar concept, uh, which uh, I, I still would love to see one in the greater Washington, D.C. area. <laughs> yeah, at least we could do some market research, right? Um, uh, nobody should be looking at Bubba's 33 as some magical driver of growth. That being said, I. They appear to be taking the same approach with that as they are with the Texas Roadhouse concept, which is let's focus on the food. And in the case of Texas Roadhouse, they don't really have dessert on the menu because they want you to leave. <laughs> yeah. They want to turn over those tables. In the case of Bubba's 33, if you're sticking around and watching sports and you're continuing to order food, you can stick around. Because they're sports on, but you know we'd like you to drink some more beer and, and well, that's just have, it. Have, have another pizza. Stick around, drink some beer because that's a high margin sale, right? right. Um, yeah, I, I, the dessert thing always makes me chuckle. That's just like one of my favorite stories of Kent Taylor. He's like, "Hey, you want dessert? Nope. Okay, get out." <laughs> it's just like, listen, let's focus on what matters here, and that's just turning tables over. Um, and I think that uh, with with Texas Roadhouse, it's interesting to note that they've. Grown traffic in the face of what seems like, I mean, industry data from the National Restaurant Association says that there are still some challenges on the traffic front. So I think, on the whole, restaurants are dealing dealing with a bit of a challenge there. And in Texas Roadhouse seems to seems to be overcoming that challenge a little bit. And I think part of that is because. They continue to focus on really presenting their customers with a value proposition that uh, that I think customers appreciate. I mean, in the face of of food inflation rising a little bit, yeah, they'll pass along modest price increases, but they're not looking to eke every penny out of you. Um, and so, you know, you don't see them really. Uh, Trying to hit that price increase button every quarter, and I think that does matter. It's not to say they don't have any pricing power, but they're just very careful in how they exercise what pricing power they may have. And you'll hear management say it on the call. They said it on this most recent one. They recognize this is a marathon, not a sprint, and and so they're they're looking at this business from the from the perspective of of longer term success as opposed to hitting numbers on a quarterly basis and I think that matters and I think investors are winning from that obviously so a few weeks ago a friend of mine turned 50 went to the birthday party ended up talking with a woman who works for a chain restaurant I would I would I'm not going to name the restaurant because I don't want to get her in trouble but I would say that they are a competitor of Texas Roadhouse. They are they are in that space. We're not yeah. talking Chipotle or fast casual. We're talking legitimate restaurant here. And the interesting thing I learned from her, just sort of getting her experience, because she works with about twenty five franchise restaurants in the Washington D.C. Baltimore area. And when I started to ask her about, well, what what do you find works with them? What I learned was the challenge. Of the franchise model is you've got some in, in in her case she's got some franchisees that have a great location 
And so they're doing well, in part because they've just got a great location. She's got some franchisees that do well because they are very involved in the community. So they're doing a lot with local high schools and doing fundraisers and, you know, hey, this will benefit the, uh, the, High school track and field team. If you come in on Tuesday night, and and fifteen percent of the ticket will go to them. It'll be a fundraiser, that sort of thing. And there are franchisees that are essentially absentee landlords. Yeah. That they do not live anywhere close to where the franchise. They're not involved in the community, and they are struggling big time. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the challenge of any franchise model. And I think you're seeing more and more concepts uh, trying to do a lot of the heavy lifting up front into making sure they're they're getting. Uh, reputable franchisees on who who want to be there for the long haul. I think we we saw Panera for a lot of years, uh, sort of taking this approach. I think that Texas Roadhouse is, has taken this approach for some time. The majority of their stores are company owned, uh, but but when you get good franchisees, it makes your it makes your life easy. I mean, I, I sort of liken it to when we owned our house in Georgia and we're living up here, and, and I was renting it out for for. Uh, Several years, and man, you just cannot discount the the advantage of just having good tenants, right? I would easily, I would give you that house for a hundred dollars less a month if I know you're going to be a good tenant. And I operated on that premise, and it worked out very well. And so you do a little bit of the heavy lifting up front. It can really make managing that process over the course of years a lot easier. Hey, before we move on, quick shout out to Bloom for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. Do you have a four hundred one k? Do you remember how frustrating it was deciding what to invest in without professional help? Now there's a better way to grow your 401k. That's with Bloom. Bloom with three O's. It's a simple, smart, and affordable way to grow your 401k. You can go online to bloom401k.com/fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps, and then sit back, relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of your funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Getting your investments right doesn't have to be hard, it doesn't have to be painful, and it doesn't have to take a lot of time. Bloom only takes five minutes, and then your retirement is set until you cancel. And they link to your existing 401k so you don't have to move your money. Bloom is so simple, that the hardest thing about Bloom is remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. Go to bloom401k.com/fool. Enter the promo code fool for your first month free, and see the difference that Bloom could make in your retirement. Before we wrap up, uh, Apple reports after the bell uh, today. Teladoc, yes, a company that you uh, have a great deal of affinity for. Reports after the bell. Uh, before we get to what I should be looking for in Teladoc's report, do you want to share your Teladoc experience over the weekend? <laughs> well, at the risk of grossing somebody out, I mean, why not? Because I think this is this is important stuff here. Because I've I've, I've listened to, to people on both sides of the coin with this with this company, and and I you know personally, for the, for those, Teladoc, right? For those Teladoc who don't is know. is the move towards virtual healthcare, right? It's it's bringing that doctor's office essentially into an app on your smartphone, and it is actually an app on your smartphone. In probably a month ago or so, I learned that our health insurance provider, we have our health insurance through my wife's employer, which is the federal employee program. And so the Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP recently signed on Teladoc as an added service to our plan. But that's a big win. I mean, we just, you know, hey, that's an additional service. And so 
Chris, you know, I mean, I don't remember the last time this happened to me. I think it was when I was growing up swimming on the swim team, but somehow or another, over the course of the weekend, I landed a case of pink eye in my right eye. Never fun. Kind of gross. I like to call it conjunctivitis because it sounds more adult. Yes. Pink eye is just like you're a kid. But hey, listen, I live in a house with two kids and three dogs and two guinea pigs to boot. So, I mean, you figure, I mean, it's something, it's something came from somewhere, and I'm not pointing fingers, but regardless. I needed to take care of this problem, and so I was taking my daughter to horseback riding on Sunday afternoon. And it just got to the point where I said, "You know, I need to figure out what this is." I had an idea what it was, but you know, you got to get a diagnosis. And I thought, "Well, I'm, I'm taking my daughter to horseback, get her out there to the stables, drop her off." And I'm sitting in the parking lot. And I'm like, "Well, hey, let me just give this teledoc thing a shot, see if it works." And uh, so I, you know, I have that everything already set up in the app through our insurer, and so I just go in there, I submit. Uh, all of the information, request a visit. Ten minutes later, uh, doctor video conferences in. We have about a twenty-minute meeting. Um, I'd taken a couple of pictures so that you could see what you know I was I was pointing out. In long story short, she made the diagnosis. She prescribed me the the eye drops that I was then able to go pick up at my local CVS pharmacy by her house, um, and problem was solved for a fifteen-dollar copay. And, and so and you it, never left your car. I never left my car. I went to the doctor while I was at my daughter's horseback riding lesson, and, and it just, to me, it sort of reiterated the power of this business, um, and just the power of the idea of virtual healthcare. And I tell you what really took me back was in meeting with the doctor. Of course, I, I have to try to get some sort of insight as to how she felt about just the virtual healthcare movement. And this was not company specific. I was just asking her opinion on this, and she was, you know, probably somewhere between fifty and sixty years old. And she was just an utter proponent of it. She was just floored by the implications and and how helpful it has been, uh, particularly in areas where you're either in a remote area and you don't have easy access to a doctor, or if there's a natural disaster, or whatever the case, she just felt like this was a long time coming, and she's excited as a physician about the possibilities and the potential. And then when I asked her further about Teladoc, she just said she couldn't say enough good things about the company, enjoyed working with them, and yada yada yada. So it's all just to say that. From my misfortune, perhaps some investors will gain from this, Chris, because I feel like I've been talking about this company for a while. The stock continues to do well. Um, earnings are later today. I'm again excited about what these guys are doing. Whether the stock goes up or down after this report is is meaningless. I mean, it, what should I be looking for in their report? I, I think you know we we look at just some basic metrics that that they always. Uh, Report. I mean, it's revenue, the breakdown of revenue, subscription access versus visit fees. But really, you're looking at the total base of users, paid memberships, the number of visits, which can give us an idea sort of of engagement, and then that can give us an idea of how much money per visit per member they're bringing in. And it really, at this point, with this company, is all about just growing that user base, uh, continuing to. Uh, Communicate the idea that they really are the number one provider in this space. I think that's what a lot of the uh, to do behind this best doctors acquisition was in, in sort of the secondary opinion, the expert opinion market. I think they're really focused on growing out to become the biggest network, the best network, so that they can offer the most solutions to to any client that may want them. And it certainly seems like a lot of clients are signing on. So uh, excited to see what this company has to announce later today. 
Jason Moser, thanks for being here, man. Many thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.